herzlich willkommen in Berlin. Hello and a warm welcome to Berlin. I'm Marion Jones and this is City Breaks Berlin, episode 16, A Day at the Lakes. If you're in Berlin for any length of time, long enough to think about doing a day trip, then surely a trip out to one or more of the lakes which surround the city is an excellent idea. I'm going to focus on one particularly, the Wannsee, but mention too at the end of the episode a few other alternatives. But even on this one lake, a little southwest of the city and easily reached by Stadtbahn, I can bring you places to walk and swim, lots of peacocks and plenty of historical interest, a royal summer hideaway, an Italian-style castle, the bridge which featured in The Bridge of Spies, the 2015 Spielberg film you may have seen, also an idyllic lakeside artist's residence, now a museum, a tragic lakeside suicide spot related to a well-known German author, and an unusual little museum all about the clever works done over the centuries by the royal gardeners operating in and around Berlin. This being Berlin, there are also, I'm afraid, some Nazi connections, notably a fantastic party, Bet you weren't expecting that. And also a site of historical interest, the villa where the Wannsee Conference was held. So really, whatever your interests, I'm pretty sure there'll be something for you in this episode. And I'm focusing particularly on places which are easily reached from central Berlin. Certainly no more than an hour's travel, often less. And just to set the scene, here's an author describing a day out to one of the lovely lakes surrounding Berlin on a hot summer's day in 1934. The writer is Unity Mitford, one of the Mitford sisters, the one who landed in Germany and did far too much fraternising with the Nazis, even with Hitler himself, and ended by shooting herself. And this piece was written just as tensions were really mounting in Berlin, and she decides to set out to the Glinikersee, known as Lake Glinika in English, a few miles outside Berlin in a southwesterly direction, on the way to Potsdam, and this is her description of that day, June the 30th, 1934. We took down the top of the Ford Roadster and drove to Grossglinica, a lovely, fairly private lake near Wannsee. I'd baked in the sun the whole day, retiring to the shade only for cooling drinks and sandwiches. It was a beautiful, serene, blue day, the lake shimmering and glittering in front of us, and the sun spreading its fire over us. It was a silent and soft day. We didn't even have the energy or desire to talk politics or discuss the new tension in the atmosphere. At six o'clock, we decided we had had enough sun and we drove slowly and quietly back to Berlin, our heads giddy and our bodies burning from the sun. We passed through lanes of acacia trees, their beautiful white clustered blossoms, like bunches of rich ivory-tinted grapes, falling heavily forward and down. Their scent like ripe grapes in the sun-laden air. Then there would be lanes of green coolness. As we sped by luxuriant dark trees, then a stretch of sun-warmed sharp pine odour, almost like dry, pungent dust in the nostrils. So very different then from central Berlin, even though it's not really very far away. My top tip for a day out would be to take the Stadtbahn number no. 7 out to the Wannsee which is actually two lakes, so See means lake, and here you will find the Großer Wannsee, the large one, and the Kleiner Wannsee, the smaller one, 
separated by a bridge known, you've guessed it, as the Wannsee Bridge. And this area is Berlin's top outdoor bathing area. Somewhere to go for countryside, water, fresh air, some walking, some swimming. Here you'll find lots of goodies. An open-air Lido, one of the longest inland beaches in the whole of Europe. Some chic architecture from the 1920s. To use the Lido itself, I think you have to book ahead. That's one option. There you can rest and swim and rent a Strandkorb, one of those basket chairs you see on North German beaches. Or, of course, you can walk a little further around the lakeside in either direction and find your own shady little spot. A day out in itself, but I've got a number of other options, the most popular of which is probably a visit to somewhere called Pfaueninsel, which means Peacock Island. And yes, there really are peacocks there. So you'll need to travel on a little bit further by bus and ferry to reach the idyllic Peacock Island with its fairy tale castle. I believe, in fact, that's closed for renovation just at the moment, due to open again in 2024. The island in the 17th and 18th centuries had a long connection with royalty. Friedrich Wilhelm I set up a glassworks there. Friedrich Wilhelm II used the island as a place to meet his lover, Wilhelmina von Lichtenau. And it was he who decided to have a little summer palace built there for them to use. A touch of the Marie Antoinette's, actually, somewhere rural where they could play at country life, have some cows and milk them, build a dairy, that sort of thing. And they both had ideas about what they wanted it to look like. Wilhelmina's was, oh, let's have a derelict rural Roman villa. That's kind of the style of the outside. And Friedrich Wilhelm himself was very taken with faraway places like Tahiti, which had recently been discovered. And so he took that as his theme. Parts of the inside were decorated as a bamboo hut. There are paintings of exotic plants all over the inside walls, colourful peacocks strutting the garden. And when, a bit later in the 18th century, Friedrich Wilhelm III and his wife Louisa also used this place as a romantic retreat, they continued the exotic theme. They had some real palm trees planted. You can see signs of all of this still today. And one more thing. The Louisan Temple, or Temple to Louisa, in the grounds. You might remember Louisa, the very popular queen I talked about in the Charlottenburg episode, who died very young, only in her thirties, and whose husband built her a mausoleum in the grounds of Charlottenburg. In fact, two were built, and when the second one was installed, the original was moved from Charlottenburg out here to Peacock Island, another of Louisa's favourite places. The exotic theme continued through the 19th century. Various Prussian kings kept exotic animals here, buffalo, kangaroos, lions, peacocks of course. But come the 1840s, Berlin Zoo was set up and most of these animals were moved there. But not the peacocks. They remained and still remain. You will see them if you visit today. To give an idea of what a charming little place it is, here's the novelist Theodor Fontana remembering visiting it in, I'm guessing, about the 1820s. Quote, an image from my childhood springs to mind like a fairy tale. A palace, peacocks sitting up on a high branch or fanning out their tails. Fountains, shady lawns, winding paths running in all directions, but leading nowhere in particular. And just before you get the idea that it's nothing but idyllic, let me mention one event with a very different flavour which took place here in 1936, and that was a huge party organised by Goebbels 
to impress all the high-profile foreign guests who'd come to Berlin for the Olympics. This was in fact the grand finale to all the festive events that they'd arranged, and no expense was spared. Engineers were commissioned to build a new bridge to make sure all the guests arrived safely and with dry feet, and here's the author Oliver Hilmes in his book Berlin 1936, describing what met them when they arrived on the island. Invitees are welcomed by pages entirely dressed in white who show them the way to the party. The first views are lovely. Thousands of butterfly-shaped lamps decorate the treetops, bathing the tree trunks in muted green. In the centre of the island is a clearing where the party proper is being held. There are festively decorated tables, rivers of wine and a menu with never-ending courses of expensive delicacies. An orchestra plays classical music and dancers perform atop a raised platform, one of several stages. For later in the evening, Goebbels has engaged the popular band leader Oskar Joost and his swing orchestra, who usually play in the luxurious Eden Hotel. Oliver Hilmes goes on to describe how the evening ended with a gigantic fireworks display, beginning on the stroke of midnight. Amazing pyrotechnics, which were seemingly never-ending. It's thought they lasted at least half an hour, and then the author describes how a sense of unease came over the crowd. Quote, the endless massive explosions remind many of the guests of artillery fire. Finally, the din comes to an end with a gigantic concluding boom that turns the nocturnal heavens blood red. It's hard to imagine a clearer statement by the German government that after the end of the Olympics, the period of political moderation will be over. Eek. Today, Peacock Island forms part of a UNESCO World Heritage Site together with two other nearby sites, they being the Glienicke Palace, which I'll be talking about in a minute, and the Sanssouci Palace in Potsdam. You could certainly visit Peacock Island and Glienicke Palace on the same day, I think, but Potsdam is surely worth a day to itself, at least. And actually, if you like to take things slowly, I think Peacock Island's worth a day to itself, too. Some leisurely strolling, perhaps a swim, a visit to the castle... Maybe a picnic, there are no cafes on the island, and a chance to enjoy nature and wildlife. Here's the Visit Berlin site on that topic. Quote, Apart from the eponymous peacocks still out strutting the lawns and displaying their plumage, the island is home to a wealth of wildlife, from cormorants to woodpeckers, and innumerable frogs. In summer, four water buffalo are kept here to help control the grass growing on the wet meadows. Certainly a contrast to the city centre. OK then, let's move on to Schloss Glienicke, known as Glienicke Palace in English. So the one which forms part of the World Heritage Site. To get there from central Berlin, you do have to go by way of Wannsee, so taking the S-Bahn, and then on by bus, number 316 I believe, to Schloss Glienicke where you will find a dream of Italy on the banks of the River Havel in Berlin. That's the Visit Berlin website again built in the 1820s by the Prussian royals, who travelled to Italy and loved it, and wanted something similar to what they'd visited there, built here. It was built for Prince Karl of Prussia, who loved it and kept his antique collection here, but whose family let it fall into ruins when he died. The area it stands in formed part of East Germany, so that didn't help with renovation etc., but in 1995 
the Prussian Palaces and Gardens Foundation of Berlin-Brandenburg acquired it and restored it. It too is currently closed, again set to reopen in 2024, when you will once again be able to get into the inside of this classically built palace, where you will find some surprisingly vibrant decoration. There's a red hall and a green salon, the bedrooms all done out in turquoise, the library in deep blue. You can enjoy the period furniture, a chaise long here, a marble bust there. And then you can wander the grounds where you'll find, for example, the gilded lion fountain. Not your average lion fountain, but one based on the Villa Medici in Rome. There's an idyllic little garden courtyard, very Mediterranean atmosphere. Think pergolas, antiques on the walls, fountains, some of which were bought in Italy by Prince Karl and brought all the way back to Berlin. And there is a casino. Now, I consider myself a linguist, but I did not know that casino is actually Italian for small house. So this one wasn't built as such for gambling, it was built as a general party venue. Summer parties on the ground floor, apartments on the upper floor for guests to stay in. More pergolas, a rooftop terrace, steps leading down to the river. And elsewhere in the grounds you will find a pair of buildings known as the Big Curiosity and the Little Curiosity, they being a tea house, where the prince liked to take tea, and a pavilion, where he liked to watch over life on the river and keep an eye on comings and goings on the nearby road to Potsdam. And it's also here at Schloss Klinika that you will find the Court Gardeners Museum, the only one of its kind in Europe dedicated to explaining exactly how the work of the Prussian court gardeners developed. How did they plan? What did they grow? The history of three centuries of garden design. So all in all then, at Schloss Klinika, Lots of lovely things to wander through and contemplate. And if you are thinking that that word Glienica sounds familiar, it might be, could it be, because you have seen The Bridge of Spies, the Spielberg film about a prisoner exchange during the Cold War. Because yes, it was on Glienica Bridge that the exchange was carried out. Lake Glienica was right on the border between East and West Germany, or rather East Germany and the land just outside West Berlin, which was still under Western control, and so the bridge formed an obvious connection between the two, to the extent that, of course, the East Germans shut it down completely as soon as the Berlin Wall went up. But because of its position, quite remote and yet spanning the East and the West, it was an obvious place for prisoner exchanges to take place. And this film, Bridge of Spies, tells the story of the very first one, which took place in 1962. The Soviet spy Rudolf Abel, played by Mark Rylance in the film, is exchanged for a US pilot, Gary Powers, who'd been shot down, captured by the KGB and imprisoned. There were in fact several more prisoner exchanges on the bridge in subsequent years, but I think partly because of the film, this one is the one that everybody's heard of. And if you take a coach tour anywhere in this area, I think you can be pretty sure that they will stop there and show you the Bridge of Spies. The Glinica Bridge reopened on November the 10th, 1989, exactly one day after the opening of the Berlin Wall. If it's history that interests you, then there's something else in the area which you're certainly going to want to visit, namely the Wannsee Conference House. The building in which the famous conference took place on January the 20th, 1942. It was here that senior Nazi officials gathered to discuss their final solution. 
in other words, what they planned to do about the Jews in Europe. The building was a luxury lakeside villa. The SS bought it and began to use it as a guest house and a place for meetings. If you want to visit it today, again, take the S-Bahn to Wannsee and then a bus, a 114, I think it's two or three kilometres away. And I have to say, it does make for a rather strange visit because what you see when you first arrive is a mansion built in Italian style, elegant rooms and no immediate hint of what happened there. Then comes the exhibition, described as follows on the Visit Berlin website. The first exhibition room gives information about the people who attended the conference, along with documents about anti-Semitism and racism in the 1920s. Go through the hall to see items of Third Reich propaganda, such as posters and leaflets. Another three rooms are devoted to the collaboration with the Nazi leaders, along with archive material from Eastern Europe, which has only been on public display since the 1990s. It can still be quite hard to grasp the horrific scale of what was decided here. And one piece of writing which I came across that does it very well is a novel by Laurent Binet called HHHH. He uses the chilling phrase, it was at Vanze that the genocide was rubber-stamped, and gives quite a lot of detail about the meeting itself. Quote, the meeting lasted barely two hours. Two hours to settle what were essentially legal questions. What should be done with half-Jews, and with quarter-Jews, with Jews who'd been decorated in the First World War, with Jews married to German women? Should these men's Aryan widows be compensated by giving them a pension? As in all meetings, the only decisions that are really made are those decided beforehand. In fact, for Heydrich, that's Reinhard Heydrich, director of the Reich Main Security Office, it was just a question of informing all the Reich ministries that they were going to have to work together with one objective in mind, the physical elimination of all Europe's Jews. It was in 1992, on the 50th anniversary of the conference, that the building was reopened as a museum and education centre. And nearby, walking distance away, is another house you may wish to visit, the Liebermann Villa, the lakeside country residence bought by the artist Max Liebermann. He called it his castle on the lake, and he lived there for several decades from the end of the 19th century until the 1930s. And today you can visit it to learn about him and his work, which spans the era from naturalism to impressionism. Max Liebermann was a Jewish Berliner, born in a townhouse right next to the Brandenburg Gate, a student at Berlin University, and eventually a working artist, one who founded the Berlin Secession Movement, painted many works of his own, largely landscapes, and organised exhibitions, showing German artists of the time, and also painters like Picasso and Matisse. So really, somebody who played a pivotal role in art in the Berlin world and further afield, who eventually became president of the Berlin Arts Academy, but who, in the end, as a Jew, fell foul of the Nazis. In 1927, he was asked to paint an official portrait of President von Hindenburg, something the Nazis didn't like at all, so they began to persecute him. He was forced to resign from his presidency of the academy, his villa was confiscated, and he went back to central Berlin to his house in Pariser Platz, just near the Brandenburg Gate, where he died in February 1935. If you visit the house today, you can see his artist studio, where 40 or so of his own paintings are on display, landscapes, paintings from nature, 
portraits of other artists he knew, like Oskar Kokoschka and Georg Kolbe, and where there is also a multimedia exhibition about Lieberman, his life and his work. Another spot that people in the know sometimes visit is the burial place of the poet Heinrich von Kleist and his friend Henrietta Vogel, both of whom committed suicide here together in November 1811. Just off Bismarckstrasse, you can find a little pathway leading down to the Kleiner Wannsee, so the smaller of the two Wannsee lakes, where there's a thicket of trees and a clearing with a simple grave, where both Kleist and Henrietta Vogel are buried together. It's not very far from the Wannsee S-Bahn station, where, in preparation for your visit, you can rent an audio guide telling you the story of these two unhappy people. Heinrich von Kleist was depressed, mainly because he felt that what he was writing wasn't fully appreciated, and that led to money worries. Henrietta Vogel was suffering from cancer, and the two of them decided that they would die together. So they took a walk along the Kleiner Wannsee, stopped in this clearing, sat down at a garden table, drank coffee and wine and rum until four o'clock in the afternoon when the poet took two pistols out of his picnic basket, shot his companion, as agreed, and then himself. A few days later they were buried together in the same spot and with a very moving inscription for Kleist, one which was later removed by the Nazis, Kleist being one of the many, many authors of whom they disapproved, and which I think has been reinstated, and which read, quote, He lived, sang, and suffered in gloomy and difficult times. He sought death here and found immortality. So all in all, there is plenty to see around and about the Wannsee. But I wouldn't like to leave you with the impression that that's the only lake worth visiting, because, no, 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 there are lots more. I've actually read the number 3,000. Can that possibly be true? What certainly is true is that Berlin is surrounded by lakes and forests. So for a few other ideas of places you could go, here goes. And as they all have, of course, German names, which are quite difficult to get hold of if you don't speak the language, I'll put a list of them in the show notes. So one of the nearest is the Demeritzsee. It might help to remember that Zee is the bit that means lake. So the Demeritzsee is very popular with Berliners, not least because it's easy to get to. A 30-minute ride on the S-Bahn 3 from Alexanderplatz will take you there. And another one that's easy to reach, again on the S-Bahn, an S1 this time, is Schlachtensee, which I always find amusing because Schlachten is the German verb to slaughter, and I don't know why they give that name to a beautiful lake. Anyway, if you get off the S1 there, you'll be within very easy walking distance of said lake. There are paths round it in both directions to small, shady bays. And there is also one of those wonders of the German imagination, a beer garden. The largest lake is the Müggelsee. Slightly trickier to get to because you need to take two modes of transport, an S-Bahn from Line 3 to Friedrichshagen and then a tram to Strandbad Müggelsee, where you will find plenty of things to make your journey worth the while. Sand and a beach and the lake, of course beach volleyball, lots of boating and surfing options, a huge shallow water zone, so attractive for families with young children. I think there's also a playground, and there are certainly some snack opportunities too. The second largest beach is the Teglersee, also a bit harder to reach, as in you need a Stadtbahn, an S25 and a bus to get there, but if you manage it, there you will find beaches, sailing boats, 
and a real promenade to stroll along. I don't have one to hand, but I'm sure that at the tourist office you'll find all kinds of information and leaflets about visiting lakes from central Berlin. Something which Berliners have been doing, of course, over the centuries, and which became particularly important in the days of East and West Berlin, when West Berliners were surrounded on all sides by East Germany, but when at least the territory known as West Berlin did include some of these lakes. Therefore, an easy way to get out of the city and enjoy nature. So if when you're in Berlin you want to do what the Berliners themselves do, then you just need to get your head around the S-Bahn system, find out one or two of the numbers for which ones will take you where, and get going. I fully recommend. I think this is going to be the penultimate Berlin episode. I'm planning at the moment one more episode to round everything off, an anthology episode with extracts from travel writers from over the centuries and a good range of excerpts from novels and history books written about Berlin, each of which tells you a little bit more about this wonderful city. After that, there will of course be a new series, but at the same time, there'll be some changes afoot at City Breaks. I'm looking to develop the website and make it much more extensive and useful to have a proper blog entry for every episode so far, with a summary of the contents, all the links you need to find out more, suggestions for further reading, etc, etc. More about that in the next episode. For the moment, I hope very much that you've enjoyed our day at the lakes, our escape from central Berlin, wonderful though that is, to somewhere a little quieter, a little more relaxed, a little more middle of nature. And I hope too that you'll join me then next time for the anthology episode. Meanwhile, thank you once again very much for listening. Vielen Dank fürs Zuhören. And until next time, goodbye. Bis zum nächsten Mal. Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>